According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 12. Jeremiah chapter 12. Jeremiah asks a question in this chapter that we all ask from time to time. Sometimes we ask every day of our lives, why do the wicked and treacherous prosper? Why is it that everything is going their way? (laughs) And it just doesn't seem right. He's the God of righteousness. He's the God of justice. These are the the wicked and the treacherous. Why do they have it made? And so uh, he uh, asked this question. We have the first six verses here dealing with this. Before we get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God the Father to set aside distractions, asking for concentration and a blessing upon the truth of his word today. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your faithfulness. Father, we come before your throne of grace this morning, unworthy, undeserving. Who are we? that we should have the mind of Christ, and yet we have the mind of Christ. Father, you have blessed us with the Hebrew Scriptures, the Greek Scriptures. You've blessed us with spiritual gifts. We thank you for a local church and a gifted pastor-teacher. We thank you for all things that you have provided. You have provided all things necessary for life and godliness. And here we are, Father, to be equipped. So bless our time of study. Minister your word to our benefit. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, working our way through, we've done 11 chapters already. Remember, we're covering a chapter per week, and uh, that's the plan anyway. And it worked as far as 66 chapters of Isaiah is concerned. And uh, so far, 11 weeks of uh, Jeremiah have uh, brought us to this point. Um, It might be slightly helpful in the sense that Jeremiah is not necessarily written sequentially or chronologically. It's rather shotgun scatter approach. And so we really don't know uh, when this chapter was written or what the exact time context might be or the setting. This might be later at the end of his life. This might be quite early in his life. It's hard to say because the chapters are very scrambled. They're scrambled and out of order uh, in, in different ways. So um, anyway, it's all right. It's timeless and it applies for us today and we can proceed with it from there. Righteous are you, O Lord, that I would plead my case with you. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. And this is an introduction that says, Oh, Lord, I got something I want to talk to you about. (laughs) All right? And and using the the language of law, very similar to the book of Job, uh, arguing in a court, in a courtroom as an attorney that may want to approach the bench and take up an issue with a judge. Uh, Very similar language here. Jeremiah says, Lord, we got to talk because this is not right. And you are the absolute God of justice. And so I would discuss matters of justice with you. Why then? Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? You have planted them. Notice he's blaming God. God either did it or he let it happen. Either way, it's God's fault. You have planted them. They have also taken root. They grow. They have even produced fruit. You are near to their lips, but far from their mind. But you know me, O Lord. You see me, and you examine my heart's attitude toward you. Drag them off like sheep for the slaughter, and set them apart for a day of carnage. 
How long is the land to mourn and the vegetation of the countryside to wither? For the wickedness of those who dwell in it, animals and birds have been snatched away because men have said he will not see our latter ending. If you have run with footmen, and now the Lord is answering, by the way, in verses 5 and 6, if you have run with footmen and they have tired you out, then how can you compete with horses? If you fall down in a land of peace, how will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? For even your brothers and the household of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. Even they have cried aloud after you. Do not believe them, although they may say nice things to you. All right, so there's our first six verses. We'll stop there and handle that as a unit. Uh, I'll take the next section, uh, the next stretch as a unit as well, 7 through 13, and then we'll wrap it up in uh, verses 14 through 17 before our communion service today. Thankfully, for Communion Sunday, which is always our shortest Sundays, uh, we only have 17 verses to to get through between now and the the end of our time together. So, back to this complaint. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why do you let them get away with this? Why? And and he blames you. You you planted them, Lord. You planted them. This is your fault. All right? Now, we have actually a very common lament. Uh, Job voiced it in Job 21. Uh, David voiced it, or actually Asaph, the psalmist, voiced it in Psalm 73. It's a fairly common complaint. If the believer is oriented to truth, if he's not too far into darkness, he won't ask the Lord to blast the people. (laughs) He might simply ask for some visible righteousness. But I think it is common to ask for the Lord to blast the people, what we call the imprecatory psalms, the imprecatory prayers, calling upon God to manifest justice towards the injustice in different things there. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but just let me highlight for you Job 21.7 and um, give you some homework. You can follow up with these on your own see a larger context because really... um, you have to go back to uh, the beginning of chapter 21. This is Job's answer to Zophar from chapter 20. Um, Job answered, listen carefully to my speech. Let this be your way of consolation. Bear with me that I might speak. Then after I have spoken, you may mock, right? I mean, tease me when I'm done, but at least let me finish what I have to say. (laughs) Can you do that? And uh, as for me, is my complaint to man, and why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be astonished and put your hand over your mouth. Even when I remember, I am disturbed and horror takes hold of my flesh. Why do the wicked still live, continue on, also become very powerful? In other words, in light of Job's experience and everything that he went through with his children dying and his physical afflictions and his wife not dying and everything else the Lord permitted Satan to do to torment Job, uh, he still, when he thinks back to it, he can't believe it. It still boggles the mind. And then to watch these wicked people thriving when uh, Job is still uh, dealing with the consequences of his own, of his own uh, undeserved suffering. So it doesn't stop there. It's verses 7 and following. It, it uh, talks about them and their children, their, their grandchildren, the next generation, why it is their houses are safe from fear and God doesn't judge them, the ox and the cow, their livestock are mating and they're not even having a, a fail in any of these things. You have a, a, a chapter here where the attitude Jeremiah's expressing in chapter 12 comes across very clearly. We see what we're dealing with, we see what they're enjoying, and it just seems absolutely unfair. Life seems unfair, and we don't like it. 
All right? And we've got to get a handle on that. We've got to get a handle on that from the Scriptures to understand what the absolute standard of fairness is. If not, then you and I become ripe targets for manipulation. There will be somebody, a politician or somebody will come along, and they will agree with you that life is not fair, and that if you support them, then they're going to make it fair, or they're going to be on your side, or things will get better, or anything else, all right? So we need the, the scriptures. We need the Bible to paint for us the realities that, yes, this world is not fair because this world is a fallen world, and it won't be fair until Jesus Christ returns and remedies the issues that have to be remedied. Until then, give it up. Until then, quit this dream of a utopia that's not going to happen until Jesus Christ returns and brings in perfection. And by the way, that's not the millennium. It's after the millennium. It's the new heavens and the new earth with a thousand generations of righteousness. All right? Not the millennium. There's still rebellion and sin and death in the millennium. All right. Uh, Psalm 73, likewise. Uh, You can uh, look that up as well on a homework basis. The land laments their lying landlords, all right? The land laments. Did you know land can cry? You know, the scripture describes the ground that cries out when innocent blood is shed, for example, when Cain murdered Abel, or when unrestrained fornication defiles a land, the land cries out, or when injustice takes place within a land, the land cries out. The land laments their lying landlords. In fact, Romans 8 spells this out, how creation itself groans because of the sin of man. It's the, cre- it's the sin of man that put creation in the place where it is now. Not just fallen people, but a fallen world. The world itself suffers the consequences of human sin. Not just when Adam sinned. Today, we defile the land today. Austin is defiling the land today with the rampant fornication and murder and bloodshed and and immorality and and unjust business practices, this land gets defiled today. And it's spelled out here in verse 4. Let me get back to, I lost my place, Jeremiah 12 and verse 4, with the lamenting that takes place. How long is the land to mourn? And you'll spotlight here the vegetation and the animals, flora and fauna. See them both there? The vegetation of the countryside to wither for the wickedness of those who dwell in it. Well, wait a minute. (laughs) By the way, this is a marvelous verse to show any environmental friends you might have. All right? Because they've got other explanations for why uh, the world's in trouble and we have to save it. All right? The scriptures actually, though, tell us that creation suffers the consequences of human sin. This becomes clear. And also the animals Animals and birds have been snatched away. You want to start a preservation program for endangered species? It's a sin issue. It is a human sin issue. As the creation itself suffers consequences of human sin. Because men have said he will not see our latter ending. And so judgment hits the the creation suffers by virtue of God's divine discipline upon his stewards. We are the ones that have the sovereignty over this created realm and we are hurting it in our, in our carnality, in our sinfulness. Genesis 4, 10, even the term landlord, <laughs> landlord, that's becoming unpopular, right? Um, you know, Lord, well, that 
you know, reminiscent of whatever, slavery or whatever. And, then, and, and who can own land anyway, right? You know, we should, you know, the, the Native Americans didn't own land. They viewed the land as living and, and they wouldn't try to own a piece of land. Well, the scripture describes ownership. He put Adam and Eve in a land and he described the boundaries. Inside the boundaries is your land. Beyond those boundaries is somebody else's land. Boundaries have a reason and they're in the scriptures. I think that too is why Satan hates the boundaries. You think everything God designed, Satan's got an attack against it. Borders, Satan hates it. Family, Satan hates it. Children, Satan hates it. Everything God designed. And it's all right there in the first few chapters of Genesis. All right, Genesis 4.10, the blood was crying out from the ground. And, and Yahweh came down to examine after the murder of, of Abel. Cain murdered Abel. The blood was crying out from the ground. Leviticus 18. This time I'm going to keep my place in Jeremiah. While I turn to Leviticus 18. And uh, you know you're uh, in for something good when you get to Leviticus because of how much it's hated. Uh, people you talk to. They'll ask, well, do you eat pork chops? And, and when you say yes, or do you eat bacon, or do you eat shellfish, or whatever, and, and they think as soon as you say you do, then they've got you, right? That, that you can just throw Leviticus out of your Bible, and we, we're supposed to accept homosexuality and everything else. That's their logic, right? Simply because in Jesus Christ, in the church age, we have abrogated the dietary restrictions of Mosaic law does not change God's unchanging eternal standards for human sexuality, for marriage, for anything else within the realm of creation. That's their logic anyway. In the process of this, notice Leviticus 18. And um, man, I could preach this the whole hour, but all of these uh, sexual sins and all the things that are out of bounds, and notice, you'll notice also the language of proprietary ownership. Nakedness is not just a state of not having clothes on. Nakedness belongs to somebody. And, and nakedness belongs to your spouse. It belongs to your wife, belongs to your husband, it belongs to your spouse. Uh, that's nobody else's nakedness but theirs. And that's why it uh, it's, uh, violates all these other principles. But when we get down to these uh, verses here, verse 25 and verse 28, you'll notice the defilement is of yourself and the defilement is of your land. So in verse 24, Leviticus 18, 24, it says, Do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all these the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. For the land has become defiled, therefore I have brought its punishment upon it, so the land has spewed out or vomited its inhabitants. When does a nation lose its sovereignty? When does a people get replaced with a different people who will then take custody of that land? This is no longer Comanche land, but a day is coming when I wonder, when will this no longer be American land? When will the land vomit out the uh, perverted Americans that have, through perversion, defiled the land? These are abominations in God's sight. And uh, so you have verse 25 that highlights that. Again, you got these other sins, and it's not just homosexuality, by the way, it's every flavor of, of fornication. And the men of the land who have done before you have done all these abominations and the land has become defiled so that the land will, and then the warning is don't do this stuff so that the land does not spew you out or vomit you should you defile it as it spewed out the nation which has been before you. And that's the principle there. So the land will vomit. 
We have the principle in Romans 8 as well. The the creation groans. The creation is waiting for the revelation of the sons of man. And that's a great promise too, by the way, that we have a revelation to look forward to. And it's not just the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's our revelation as well. The revelation of the sons of, of God. Romans 8, 19. The anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. You know, why do we have weeds? Why do we have pests? Why do we have uh, vermin? Why do we have, you know, I, I assume they had a legitimate function before the fall, you know, but what are they doing now, you know, and uh, can we retire them? Can we, you know, it'd be fun, you know, and in the, in the, by the way, in the millennium, some of this begins to get undone. It's not until the new heavens, new earth that all of this is undone in terms of sin and death. But we get, we get peace with the animals again in the millennium. We get to uh, lead the lion and, the, and the, the little child can lead the lion and the bear and things like that. That happens in the millennium. So we have lamenting land. And you start to wonder, or you don't want, I don't wonder, but when Israel was sent into their captivity, several things were happening. First of all, uh, the Jews were being disciplined for their carnality, for their judgment, but also the land itself was getting a rest. God is providing a rest for the, for the very land itself as they had failed to provide the rest for that land in terms of the, the Sabbath rest, the Jubilee years, or other things, plus the sexual defilement that they did upon that land. The land needed a break. So God flushed the land and took the Jews out of it for 70 years before bringing them back, and he gave the land a break in that, uh, in that application. I like the Lord's reply. Now, some people miss this. You can read commentaries that fail to miss the fact that verses 5 and 6 are the answer to verses 1 through 4. Uh, that you've got to end Job's, uh, not Job, Jeremiah's complaint with verse 4, and then you start to get Yahweh's answer in verse 5. And his answer is very blunt. Don't fail this task because the next one is even worse. <laughs> All right? Don't fail this task. I try to encourage folks too when you know, we, we fellowship over different things you're going through. And, if, and folks that get discouraged and say, well, I can't, I can't handle this test much longer. How much longer is this going to go? I say, well, I don't know, but God's got a plan for it. And don't fail this one because this one is the one getting you ready for the next one. The next one will be worse than this one. So don't lose heart now. If, uh, if you have run with footmen and they have tired you out, how can you compete with horses? You know, this race is just a foot race against, uh, you know, Usain Bolt or whatever. Pick a fast Olympic runner. And, but, you know, and you think that one's bad? Guess what? You're, next week you're in the Kentucky Derby. You know, <laughs> try running with those guys. All right. The point being, this test is designed to equip you for the next one or the next battle. If you fall down in a land of peace, how will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? You know, to me, it boggles the mind that America sends out so many missionaries to so many countries around the world because in some respects, Americans are the worst people suited for foreign missionaries. You know, think about how peaceful we have it in this land. Think about how soft, how prosperous, how wealthy we have it in this land. And then you go to wherever, pick a country, you know, anywhere on the globe, and you find that it's different. All right? in terms of angelic conflict, in terms of physical dangers, in terms of everything. Plumbing, all right, that was a big deal in my travels. Uh, Food, other things, they're eating things and daring you to join them, and you're looking at 
you know, crickets, and I'm glad we didn't. We, we, Steve said he would if I did, and I said, okay, I will if you will, and then we both forgot about it, and we were down the road before uh, we remembered that we both chickened out. <laughs> you know, some of the hardest tests we face are going to come from our own family members. As uh, he tells Jeremiah, says, you know what? Even your brothers in the household of your father, they're against you too. You know, in some ways you think, well, life is rough. Life has got me down. You know, work is kind of a mess. And, but at least I've got my family. Man, my family, they'll always stick by me. At least I can go home. At least, at least there's a refuge when I go home from work and then my family is there. But what happens when they're the worst test of all? What happens when they hate the things you're doing? When they are not on board with your spiritual priorities? Jesus spoke of this. In fact, the quotation comes out of Micah. Micah 7, verses 5 and 6. And we often don't pay attention to Micah because, you know, he's a minor prophet anyway, right? Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Micah. I tell you, if you ignore Micah 7, then... uh, you lose out on one of the most precious promises in the whole Bible because it's in Micah 7 that tells us that all our sins have been cast in the depths of the sea. A little bit earlier than that in Micah 7, we've got the uh, issues. Verse 5 says, Do not trust in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. That's kind of a curious phrase, isn't it? And you wonder... You know, is there a total marriage uh, marriage breakdown? Or why, why isn't she not called the wife? Why is she just her who lies in your bosom? Anyway, keep an eye out for her too. Guard your lips. For a son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. And when you start getting into these kind of tests, you're dealing with some, some tough things because your Storgos affection um, isn't helping matters. When, uh, when you have to apply agape love, all right? And sometimes your Storgos affection is detrimental to agape love and it causes a difficulty in thinking and, and uh, compromises in decision-making and other things can happen. Anyway, Jesus speaks on this in Matthew chapter 10. And of course, Jesus knew it well. His brothers didn't even get saved till after his resurrection. They, uh, they were just a whole pack of unbelievers. It was so bad that when he was on the cross, he didn't trust his mother to any of them. He had at least four brothers, at least two sisters, but he trusted his mother, the Apostle John. And I think that's a significant point. You know, do you want to leave your loved one in the hands of unbelievers? Come on. And so he picked the Apostle John and said, take care of my mother. And, uh, and he did. Anyway, Matthew, where am I? Matthew chapter 10. As Jesus addresses this. Matthew 10, 34 through 39. And this is interesting too. I mean, peace on earth, right? Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. Well, wasn't that what the angels were singing? In the, in the shepherd's field there and peace on earth, goodwill to man. And Well, make the appropriate application. Is that going to happen first advent or second advent? Has he, is he being rejected by his nation? Is it, is it going to be a prolonged delay until the kingdom comes on earth? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members 
of his household. And he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Notice how Jesus builds on that exhortation. When push comes to shove, you've got to ask. Am I going to compromise truth, the plan of God, the word of God, for earthly family? When earthly family is serving the adversary. And uh, he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. There's a whole series of teaching right there that we did in the Life of Christ series when we went through that chapter. So we go through these tests. And they're tough. And they may be a family test. And they're really tough. But let's use it. Let's learn from it. Let's trust the Father as we walk through this test. Because the one coming up is going to be even worse. Now, verses 7 and following. I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my inheritance. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. It's still the Lord speaking, but it's a new topic, it's a new subject, and it's so much bigger than the little stuff Jeremiah was worried about. There's actually big issues at work here with the God who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, who, who now says, I have forsaken you. That's a problem, <laughs> okay? That's an attention getter. We've got to ask ourselves, well, which is it? Both, right? The God of I will never leave you nor forsake you has forsaken his house. And we've got to have a handle on this. We've got to understand how does this work? How can one passage say this and another passage says that? And we have to, and we have to approach it because God's not a liar. Both have to be true. That's, that's our benefit. We have the delight in reconciling Scripture to Scripture. We have the delight as those who believe that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable that we can hold God, the God of truth, to His promise, to His truthfulness. See, the God-haters and Bible skeptics just throw up their hands and say, well, there, see, it contradicts, it's not true, and, and why, why waste your time with the Bible? But we are very blessed to say, no, it's all true. We reconcile and harmonize, and if we struggle, well, that's why it's called work. <laughs> be diligent to present yourself approved before God's face, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So sure, Deuteronomy 31, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Take a closer look. Who's he talking to? What's the context? Who, what, where, when, why? Is that specific to Israel? Is it specific to, Jeremy, to uh, Joshua leading Israel? Is it specific? Can we, can we take somebody's promise and apply it universally to everybody? I like to claim it as a promise, but I like to claim it because it shows up in Hebrews, not because it, it's, it's in Deuteronomy, all right? Um, what is the principle? What is the rule? What is the law? What are the exceptions? See? And if he does forsake for a season, notice, is it eternal? Is it forever? Or is it only for a season so that he can then bring them back? Is it a necessary step so that there can be an eternal gathering of Israel. So the God of I will never leave you nor forsake you. Deuteronomy 31, verse 6 and verse 8, it's cited in Hebrews 13, 8 for church age application. He has forsaken his house. Very clearly. And by the way, that was also promised in Deuteronomy 31, but some, a lot of times folks don't want to look at that. So let's take a look at it. Let's take a, well, let me read, let's read the verses. 7 through um, 13. 
I have forsaken my house. I've abandoned my inheritance. I've given the beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. So what does that mean? That means I'm done with Israel. I'm replacing them. I'm going to find the church. No, no, no. This is not justification to replace Israel with the church or with anybody. My inheritance has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has roared against me. Therefore, I have come to hate her. Ooh, Yahweh, guilty of a hate crime here. Is my inheritance like a speckled bird of prey to me? Are the birds of prey against her on every side? Go, gather all the beasts of the field, bring them to devour. Many shepherds have ruined my vineyard and have trampled down my field. They have made my pleasant field a desolate wilderness. It has been made a desolation. Desolate, it mourns before me. The whole land has been made desolate because no man lays it to heart. We've got to study desolations and abominations that cause desolations. And we recognize this is not the coming Antichrist bringing a desolation. This is their very own shepherds. Why do I think America is about to become a desolation? Because I think our shepherds aren't teaching doctrine. I think our shepherds have become entertainers. Our churches have become entertainment venues. It's the shepherds that have ruined the vineyard. And uh, the desolation can be laid at the feet of the shepherds. Remember, Sodom was destroyed not because of the homosexuals living there. There weren't ten righteous men living in Sodom that could have been blessing by association to preserve that city. On the bare heights in the wilderness, destroyers have come, for a sword of the Lord is devouring from one end of the land even to the other. There is no peace for anyone They have sown wheat and reaped thorns. They have strained themselves to no profit. But be ashamed of your harvest because of the fierce anger of the Lord. And this is his message. And they will reap this. This is what Jeremiah promises. And this happens. Nebuchadnezzar takes them away in 586 B.C. And uh, they are no longer a nation uh, from that. In fact, the Davidic throne is still vacated to this day. find it interesting. Even when... Even when the Persians let them come back and Zerubbabel helps to lead them back, Zerubbabel was the heir to the Davidic throne, but he never sat on a Davidic throne. He governed as a Persian governor and he was subjected to the Persian king and a very humble man like Zerubbabel. I love Zerubbabel. A very humble man. The Davidic throne has stayed vacated and and won't be seated until Jesus comes back at at, uh, the second advent of Jesus Christ. All right. Well, Deuteronomy 31. I mean, is this a promise or not a promise? Who's he speaking to? What's the context? What are the conditions? What are the expectations? We're looking at verse 6 and verse 8, and it's a transition here. Moses is getting ready to pass the colors. Verse 6, uh, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. So the context is the change of command ceremony, the handoff from Moses to Joshua. And uh, Joshua, who obviously feels unworthy to fill the shoes of Moses. And the people who probably feel uh, not exactly dazzled with Joshua following Moses. Then Moses called to Joshua and said to him, in the sight of all Israel, notice it's a public change of command. Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall give it to them as an inheritance. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. So here's our context. And in the Joshua generation, in the conquest of that land, they could claim that as a promise. Now, 
of course, they failed in most of the conquests, but as they conquered and as they settled and as they put up with a bunch of Canaanites in their midst that then began to drift in their application of the Word of God, can they still hold him to his promise of not leaving them or forsaking them? Well, let's see what else he has to say in the process of this chapter, because it's a fairly long chapter. And there's other aspects here, warnings about not uh, copying the practices of those Canaanites or serving their gods or, or uh, these other things. And you notice when you get down to verses 16 and 17, um, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you're about to lie down with your fathers, and this people will arise and play the harlot with the strange gods of the land. Look at that. God was way ahead of them. <laughs> he knew from day one that they were going to rebel. See, God who foreknew these things, that's what Romans makes a big deal out of, God who foreknew them did not reject them. So um, they're going to play the harlot with strange gods of the land in the midst of which they're going. They will forsake me. They will break my covenant, which I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them. Oh, look at that. I will forsake them. So when we come back to Jeremiah chapter 12, it shouldn't shock us that Yahweh says, I have forsaken you. Well, yeah, because he has to be faithful to what he promised he would do. But not utterly, not eternally. The forsaking is only, in Israel's case, for a season. I will forsake them and hide my face from them. They will be consumed and many evils and troubles will come upon them so that they will say in that day, is it not because our God is not among us that these evils have come upon us? They will find reasons to start blaming God and not themselves. But I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they will do for they will turn to other gods. All right, so this is promised. And this is a part of God being faithful. In fact, when he punishes, it's not because he's not faithful, it's because he's very faithful. When he disciplines you and me, it's because he's faithful. And then when he forgives us, it's because he's faithful. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because he's faithful. And we can be thankful for his faithfulness in this regard now it is a bigger principle than just the conquest generation and there are other applications to be made beyond that and so we can rejoice that hebrews 13 includes this in a church age application for us today make sure that uh let's see romans uh, hebrews 13 here uh, the love of the brethren is to continue do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. <laughs> I always get suspicious. I'm a naturally suspicious fellow anyway. But, you know, different folks. Is this a human being? Is this an angel? Is this a test of my grace? All right. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. What's your attitude towards folks that have been sent to prison? And uh, those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body, marriage is to be held in honor among all. This is a good verse. Notice what marriage is called here. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. That's why nothing should happen outside of marriage. It's called the marriage bed. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said... Now. He's bringing that quotation from Deuteronomy into here, into this context. So we may claim this as a principle ourselves. 
For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? If you ever need a clue as far as how to adapt an Old Testament text given to Israel, but how to adapt it to the New Testament reality in the body of Christ and the church, this is a pretty good place to start. All right, See the usage of the Old Testament and how it is applied in a church age setting. Well, some points. Desolations are determined. Yes, desolations are on their way. But an eternal promise is going to rename Shamama to Beulah. And it's going to bring the desolations to an end. One thing that ought to encourage Jeremiah is the doctrine we learned in Isaiah. And Jeremiah had access to Isaiah. He had access, don't believe. Jeremiah had access to the written text of, of Isaiah, all 66 chapters. He wasn't waiting for some Maccabean to come along and write Trito Isaiah, all right? We have the, the, uh, so much evidence of this, but in any event. The promise of Shamama, that's the, the, the desolations, okay? The desolate one is going to become the married one, Beulah. When we sing Beulah land, we're speaking about the marriage relationship of Yahweh to Israel in, in a restoration, even though that harlot was sent away. Israel played the harlot again and again and again and again. And yet Yahweh takes her back. They, uh, they will be married. That's what Beulah speaks of. Beulah speaks of married. And this great promise from Shamama to Beulah in Isaiah 62.4. And that's going to bring the desolations to an end. If you want to do more study on desolations, you actually got to back up to the chapter 4. We address some of the principles there. In Jeremiah 4, uh, also the book of Daniel. Daniel speaks of the eschatological desolations of Antichrist in the coming tribulation. Daniel 9, 26. Desolations are determined. That it's not, it doesn't throw God for a loop when uh, the angelic conflict goes to that extent. He's got a complete plan for all of that, including the desolations, including the pinnacle of Satan's achievement in the coming Antichrist and world empire of Antichrist. Um, goodness, we have to speed through this. Destroyers are on their way. That's angelic in its application. The Shadad vocabulary of fallen angels. The demons that uh, are unrestrained in a land that's under divine discipline. Destroyers and the sword of the Lord place this oracle within the eschatological context of Israel's great tribulation. And so you can take Jeremiah 12, you can relate it to Isaiah 33 and Isaiah 34. You can relate it precisely to those contexts. Again, I think this is part of the contributing evidence of uh, Isaiah's availability to the prophet Jeremiah. We know that Daniel had a complete book of Jeremiah in his hand when he was in his exile. So you start studying, uh, you get into some deep angelology here when you start studying Shaddad, you start studying the destroyer, all right, and uh, the applications on that, the sword of the Lord. Anyway. Dust off your Isaiah notes and take a look at those in chapter 33 and chapter 34. But it becomes eschatological. Let me ask you something. If God has a long-deferred and God and has a long-delayed judgment coming upon Israel, why does the church have to go through that? <laughs> Can you explain this to me? Why, when we see what led up to this, it's all about Israel. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. It is, has nothing to do with the bride of Christ. It has nothing to do with the body of Christ, with the church that is neither Jew nor Gentile. 
the, the time of Jacob's trouble, the time of the great tribulation, the time of this, this is in order to turn Shemama into Beulah, and you and I are already a bride. We don't need to go through tribulation. We're the bride of Christ from the moment of our salvation. It is Israel that has to go from Shemama to Beulah. It is Israel that has to go through the tribulation. And Israel can't start to do that until the rapture of the church takes us out of here. It's so vital that you... That's why eschatology, if you, if you neglect eschatology, I think that it damages your other approaches. I think it damages your uh, everything. Your understanding of Jeremiah chapter 12. And then we get back to these diminished prophets. Now we can start talking capitalism. Now we've got some verses here that an American can understand. Earnings are off. Uh-oh, what do we do now? This is a problem. Jeremiah chapter 12. kind of interesting you know you can ignore what the shepherds are doing you can ignore the vineyards you can ignore those churches and the spiritual realm but boy when the stock market takes a hit now people are are paying attention Uh, again verse 13 they have sown wheat and reaped thorns they have strained themselves to no profit be ashamed of your harvest because of the fierce anger of the lord you know you read the cycles of discipline this is one of the steps where you know, you might reap a harvest, but someone else is taking it. An enemy will abscond with it. Uh, or the harvest just doesn't come in. You should be getting, you know, 30 bushels an acre. You get five, you know, whatever the case may be. Say, I made up those numbers. I have no clue. <laughs> I'm not a farmer. Whatever the standard bushel per acre number is, it's going to be way down. And a nation's going to wonder, why are our crops not coming in? Why, why is the income off? What happened to the profit? <laughs> and well, what's the bigger problem? Diminished profits or diminished profits? What's the bigger problem? The way that they despise Isaiah and Jeremiah or the way that uh, they're hurting economically? No. Diminished profits are indicative of a bigger problem. It's the diminished profits. In Leviticus 26, they were told this. When you reject Bible teaching, the consequences are judgment on your land. Leviticus 26.16. Deuteronomy 28.3. In fact, uh, Pastor Theme wrote a whole book on the cycles of discipline, right? I mean, there's, there's a doctrine available. There's material available. Grace Notes has a, has a study on it. Leviticus 26.16. Deuteronomy 28.38. Rejecting the Word of God. Micah 6.15. Haggai 1.6. Haggai 2.16 and 17. I meant to put in there too. There's a passage in Amos God talks about a famine on the land. A famine, not of bread, but a famine of doctrine. A famine of doctrine. Why is it that we have so many on the older end of our pastoral spectrum that are dying and retiring and leaving the ministry, and we have such a small number on the younger end that are entering into ministry? You know, put, put the deaths and retirements in this column, put the ordinations in this column, and our scales are very tipped. And you wonder, is it because a famine is being placed upon our land? Issues there. All right, then finally, the Gentile nations. Well, I want to grab a couple of these. So let's grab Leviticus 26. So you can see these for yourself. Leviticus 26. Leave my bookmark there so I can get back. 
and you can see these cycles. And you can see at each wake-up call, there's an opportunity <clears throat> to, uh, to stem the, the flow, to stop the bleeding, to say, that's enough, right? I've learned my lesson. And that's why there's, they come in cycles. And at each step, there's an opportunity to say, Lord, that's it. We humble ourselves. We repent. We're going to get right. <clears throat> but as each of these cycles gets worse, the statement comes, if they do not repent, if they continue in their sin, and then additional consequences keep coming. So uh, Deuteron- uh, Leviticus 26, um, there's proportion. Anyway, 2616, is that what I'm looking for? I in turn will do this to you. Notice in verse 14, if you do not obey me and carry out all these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes, and if your soul abhors my ordinances so as to not carry out all my commandments and so break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption and fever that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. Also, you will sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies will eat it up. I will set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies. And those who hate you will rule over you, and you will flee when no one is pursuing you. You you know you've proceeded into the discipline at that point there. But there's these repentance opportunities at each step. Anyway, pay attention to that chapter. Um, All right, well, we'll let those go because we've got a third section to deal with. These Gentile neighbors. Judah's Gentile neighbors will only be blessed in correspondence to their attitude toward the Jewish people. Now, remember the Jewish people, their blessing or their discipline was according to the standard of the Word of God. If they were positive to doctrine, God was blessing them. If they were rejecting the Word of God, God was disciplining them. Their standard was what think ye of, of, of the Word of God. That was for Israel, the covenant nation. For the Gentile nations, the standard was how are you treating the Jews? How are you treating Israel? Are you treating them well or are you harming them? And so here in verses 14 through 17, we have a message to the, uh, the Gentiles, the wicked neighbors. Thus says the Lord concerning all my wicked neighbors who strike at the inheritance, at the, and that's Israel, of course, with which I have endowed my people Israel. Behold, I'm about to uproot them from their land and will uproot the house of Judah from among them. So there's two uprootings that happen here. The neighbors have their own uprooting, but then also Judah has their uprooting. And it will come about that after I have uprooted them, I will again have compassion on them and I will bring them back, each one to his inheritance and each one to his land. Well, now wait a minute. I understand Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, and they led the returning exiles from Babylon back to... But what about these other nations also had returnings? The Persians graciously allowed other conquered people to return to their land? What is the, uh, what is the future promise to the Moabites? What is the future promise to the Ammonites? What is the future promise uh, that, that's given in spite of their wickedness? Then, if... They will really learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives. Notice, the benefit to blessing the Jewish people is that the Gentiles have a chance to learn from the Jewish people. They can bless them, they can serve them, they can provide for them, they can pay them, they can bless the Jewish people. And in return, what do they get? 
They get to learn. They get, to, they get Hebrew Bible teachers to preach from the Hebrew Scriptures. They get to learn. So if they really learn the ways of my people, instead of rubbing off the other way, you know, instead of the Jews learning the, the fornication ways of their neighbors, the neighbors can learn the law from the Jewish people. And they swear by my name as the Lord lives. Even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, they will be built up in the midst of my people. But if they will not listen, then I will uproot that nation, uproot and destroy it, declares the Lord. As far as I'm concerned, when I evaluate um, a presidential candidate or a political party or a foreign policy of any national government, item number one on my list is what is their foreign policy towards the Jewish people? What is their, and which may, which is related to the foreign policy towards the modern state of Israel, but it's bigger than that. An attitude towards the Jewish people includes all the Jewish people in the modern state of Israel, of course, but also in our country and elsewhere. What is our, are we blessing the Jewish people or are we cursing the Jewish people? Because Genesis 12 and this text and other texts, plenty of places, say that's the number one criteria of whether you're going to be uprooted or whether you're going to be replanted. Item number two on my list for how I evaluate a presidential candidate or a political party or a national government or what have you, item number two is so low, it comes back to item number one. Say, am I a single issue voter? Well, there's one issue that will destroy this nation as per blessing and cursing to the Jewish people, say. And it may be, there's, there's folks, I like their economics, I like their other approach, I like this, I like that, but they are anti-Semitic and I will never side with that, ever side with that. So we want to understand this for what it is as well. We know, we know what the Jewish people land grant is, right? Because it's from the Euphrates to the, to the Nile. How many times do we read from the great river Euphrates to the river of Egypt? That's the land grant. That's Israel. That's what's promised to Abraham. What's promised to the Gentile nations? Well, we don't know precisely because God didn't send them a Bible in their language like he sent a Hebrew text to the Hebrew people. But we do know that Gentile nations have appointed land rights. They have an inheritance. This verse here in Jeremiah 12 spoke of a Gentile land inheritance. Verse 15, I will bring them back, each one to his inheritance, each one to his land How about that? An inheritance belongs to one people and not another people. A land belongs to one people and not another people. If you don't belong in that land, go back to your land. Ooh, now I'm a hater. All right. But the point is, there's your land and there's my land, and this land is... Oh, now I'm singing. (laughs) But the scriptural basis for volition, for marriage, for family, for nationalism... All of it is found in Genesis and all of it is hated by Satan and his, and his world system. And that's why borders are under attack. That's why marriage is being defiled. That's why babies are being murdered. That's why everything is being done in the way that it's being done. Gentiles have land rights. Acts 17.26, Job 12.23. I love these passages. These passages uh, spell out so many things. That's why uh, I don't think it's possible to be racist if you are a biblicist in the church age. We all come from the same blood. We're all born the blood of Adam, and thankfully we're all saved by the blood of Christ. 
So in Acts 17, what promises, huh? He made from one man or one blood every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Not just that, having appointed or determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. And you notice purpose number one is that they would seek God. So foreign policy ought to be directed towards blessing the Jewish people. And domestic policy ought to be about promoting the freedom of faith, the freedom of conscience with the First Amendment of freedom of religion in our uh, Constitution. Do we have a land that, that allows believers to assemble together peacefully to study the Bible? We're in a public building with a sign out front and a website telling everybody from here to San Diego where we are and what we're doing. All right? And I'm thankful that we have those freedoms. And however much longer they last is in the hand of God and His grace. But from one blood, from one man, this is where we are. Uh, Job also speaks of this in Job 12 and verse 23. Amazing. Job didn't have any Bible and Job knew this. Gentile nations will be invited to make Yahweh their God. To make Yahweh their God. The Greeks will decide, you know what? We're done with Zeus. Yahweh is our God. (laughs) The Romans say, well, no more Jupiter for us. The Egyptians will say, we're done with Ra. All the, you know, my Germanic forefathers would give up on Thor and Odin and those guys. Say, Yahweh. Up till now, Yahweh Elohim is the Lord God of Israel because He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But in the millennial kingdom, they're going to be invited. Gentile nations will be invited and perfectly welcome to say, you can now make Yahweh your God because Jesus Christ is your King. He is seated on the throne in Jerusalem and you will come once a year to worship at the Feast of Tabernacles. Gentile nations will be invited to make Yahweh their God. So Genesis 12.3, Genesis 22.18, Psalm 72.17, Isaiah 19.23-25, and Zechariah, the best of all, is Zechariah 14.16-19. Nations that don't go and worship, they get their rain turned off for the following year. No rain on any nation if their king does not go to Jerusalem and worship Jesus Christ in the Millennial Kingdom. I find that interesting. All right, well, we want to, uh, let's look at a couple of these. I know we've got communion coming up. Let's look at our exalted Savior. Let's look at Psalm 72, Isaiah, and then Zechariah. Psalm 72, and then we'll, uh, we'll do Psalm, Isaiah, Zechariah, and then we'll have to close in prayer and go to communion. Verse 16, may there be an abundance of grain in the earth and on top of the mountains. Its fruit will, will wave like the cedars of Lebanon. May those from the city flourish like vegetation on the earth. May his name endure forever. May his name increase as long as the sun shines. Let men bless themselves by him. Let all nations call him blessed. That's not going to happen after the elections this November. <laughs> all right? If your hope is in the November elections, readjust your hope. This will happen when Jesus Christ is seated on the throne of David. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders. All right, so that's Psalm 72. Isaiah 19. I don't recall that I made a big stress on this. Yeah, I did when we were teaching in Isaiah. 
There's going to be a highway. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. They're still going to be remodeling Mopac, but the highway (laughs) from Egypt to Assyria will be complete. And the Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria. The Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Think about that for the coming millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And then finally, Zechariah 14. This is where the requirement will be for the kings to come and worship. Zechariah 14. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. It will come about that any who are left, of the, any who are left, how many will survive Armageddon, right? But any who are left of all the nations that went up against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. The fan, and notice it doesn't say if any. It says the ones that don't, whichever ones don't. If the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And this will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Anyway, the coming millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Will the scriptures speak of his coming? The scriptures speak of his kingdom? And our communion service speaks of his kingdom. We have a blessing and a delight today to be able to look back to what he accomplished on the cross, on the basis of which we can look forward to what he will accomplish when he comes back. In his first advent, it was humble. He was uh, born in a manger, born to a virgin, came very humbly on a colt, entering into Jerusalem, and he allowed himself to be crucified. Second advent, he will come not as a babe, he will come as a conqueror, riding on a white horse, defeating his enemies. He will rule them with a rod of iron. We have the blessing to participate in that coming kingdom because of what he accomplished in his first coming. So beautiful that we have two elements. Beautiful that we look back and we look forward. Beautiful that we uh, commemorate the Lord at this time. Let me close our teaching with a word of prayer and then we'll move on to the communion time. Father, this is our blessing to study today, to study the the prophet of Jeremiah. And Father, to learn from these lessons, I ask, Father, I know we go quickly this hour. I know that it's a roller coaster to cover a chapter a week, but you've been blessing us, Father, with Isaiah and Jeremiah. And I want to thank you for that. I pray that we might have our eyes open to see all of the principles that we've looked at here today in terms of uh, the suffering and the, the wickedness and what our prayer life is like and how we prepare for the next test and all of these things, Father. Thank you for being so faithful. Most of all, Father, I want to thank you for your son. Uh, Jeremiah was a great type of Christ, but Christ himself came and fulfilled all of these principles, all of these things. He was humble. If uh, Jeremiah's brothers hated him, it was nothing compared to Jesus and his brothers. And uh, the death of Christ on the cross, Father, I ask that we would learn from these examples. They would imitate our Savior. Thank you for communion. Thank you for the blessing to be able to testify to what he's done and what he's about to do. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.